Daniel chapter 11, looking at verses 1 through 35 today. And if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide under the seats, you will find this on page 748. Page 748. As always, I'll begin this time with a word of prayer, and then we will consider the text together. So let's bow together now. Lord, we do thank you so much for giving us this day of worship. Thank you for each one who is gathered here today. Thank you for those who are watching us online, those who are homebound because of illness. Lord, we pray your every blessing upon them and upon us. And as we now engage in the study of a portion of your word, Lord, would you give us understanding This is a lengthy passage today. There are many prophetic details to consider. Help us, Lord, to be able to to track the movement of this text. Help us to remember what we learned today. Lord, as we make application of the text to our lives, help us to receive these applications. Help us to, to have wisdom that we might know how to put them into practice. And we pray that this entire time might be to your glory, and to our everlasting good. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So once again, we are in Daniel chapter 11. This chapter contains the most detailed set of prophecies found anywhere in the Bible. These prophecies concern that period of time between Daniel's life and the first coming of Christ. And in fact, so detailed are the prophecies of this section that some Bible scholars say the book of Daniel must have been written after all these events took place because there is no way that anybody could have predicted with this level of specificity what was going to happen before the events took place. But of course, there's no evidence for that at all. Indeed, this book was written before the events prophesied ever happened. The prophecies of Daniel chapter 11 stand as a testament to the divine inspiration of this book. They also establish for all time that God is sovereign over the affairs of men. It is God who determines when nations will rise and fall. He determines when leaders will rise and fall. God determines the unfolding of human events. He controls everything from the greatest to the least. And He always always does so for His everlasting glory and for His people's everlasting joy. And so we're going to look at these prophecies together with those thoughts in mind. But now we begin with the question of what prompted God to offer such a detailed accounting of the future in these verses. Well, God offered these prophecies in answer to a prayer. If you were here last week, you'll, you'll recall... Um, the, the point in history that we are in now, okay, at this point in history, the Jewish people have come to the end of their 70-year captivity. The decree has been issued, allowing them to leave the land of their captors to go back to the Holy Land. And the first waves of Jews have begun to return. And Daniel now is an old man. He's in his mid to late 80s, and he will never return home but he will watch his fellow Jews as they make the journey back. 
And as Daniel is there in the city of Babylon, he is terribly concerned about the future of his people. He doesn't want life back in Israel to be the way it was before their captivity. And so he goes on a spiritual retreat. He gets away from the city of Babylon where he lived, travels about 20 miles to the banks of the Tigris River, and there he fasts and he prays, and he is begging God to do a work in the hearts of the Jewish people. He's asking God that that he would help them to enter the Holy Land on the right foot, that things would not be this time the way they were last time. He's asking God to be faithful to them, to preserve them, to protect them. And it is in the midst of this heartfelt prayer that God comes to Daniel. And he sends his angel Gabriel to Daniel to offer prophecies about things to come. And God offers these prophecies in response to Daniel's prayer. He wants Daniel to know what the future holds for the nation of Israel and for the Jewish people. He wants Daniel to understand the trials that were going to face Israel, but also the glory that would follow. And here in chapter 11, verses 1 through 35, the prophecies focus upon some of the trials that were going to come Israel's way. We're going to see incredible hardships that they would be called to face. And yet, through all of the trials, all of the hardships, God was going to preserve his chosen nation. And he was going to preserve a righteous remnant right on through to the time of Christ's coming. All right, so that's what we're going to see in today's text. We pick it up now in chapter 11, verse 2, where we have the first prophecy. This is a prophecy about the Persian Empire. This was the empire that Daniel was then living in. Look what the prophecy says. Verse 2, quote, And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. All right, so again, at this time in Daniel's life, Persia was the reigning superpower, and it was ruled by a king named Cyrus. This prophecy explains, though, that Cyrus would not live forever. He was going to die, as all kings do. And then a succession of new kings would arise in Persia. And the prophecy draws our attention to the fourth king after Cyrus. It says two things about this coming king. He would be richer than all of his predecessors, and also that he would stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. From our vantage point in history, we know exactly who this prophecy is speaking of. It's talking about King Xerxes of Persia. King Xerxes, who would reign over Persia from 486 to 465 BC. That was about 75 years into Daniel's future. History shows us that the career of King Xerxes would proceed exactly as the prophecy said that it would. Xerxes would indeed accumulate tremendous amount of wealth and power during his reign. And he would direct all of that power against the kingdom of Greece. You see, by Xerxes' day, the Greek empire, at this point just the Greek kingdom, it was beginning to ascend, it was growing stronger every day. King Xerxes saw it as a growing threat to Persia, and so he wanted to stamp it out before it was too late. 
And so this is what King Xerxes did. He mounted a massive, massive military campaign. Virtually his entire navy was involved and a hundred thousand troops involved in the onslaught against Greece. Fortunately for Xerxes, this was the worst mistake of his life because he failed miserably. Nearly his entire navy would be destroyed in this operation, and it would strand all of his soldiers in Greece, and a 100,000 of his troops would perish in the war. Friends, this would mark the beginning of the end for the Persian Empire. Now, this empire would continue to limp along for a few more generations, but Xerxes' attack on Greece and his defeat by Greece, that is the beginning of the end. And I think this is the point of this prophecy, that Persia, at the time of Daniel, it looked mighty. Maybe it even looked invincible to Daniel and, the, and others in the world. But God was explaining that its time was short. A few more kings would take the throne, but then the fourth king would come. He would attack Greece, but this would be the end. Persia was going to fall. And yet Israel would endure. Now we come to the next prophecy, verses 3 and 4. This is a prophecy about Persia's successor, which would be, of course, the Greek Empire. And verse 3 is a prophecy about the Greek Empire's greatest leader. It says, Then, then meaning subsequent to Persia, a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. Okay, this is talking about Alexander the Great the most prominent leader of the Greek empire who arose several generations after Daniel's time. In fact, history records that Alexander the Great was one of the most brilliant military strategists that the world has ever known. And he successfully mounted a campaign first against Persia. He had a, a particular vendetta against Persia, probably because generations earlier, Xerxes had tried to wipe Greece out. So he has a, 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 a chip on his shoulder with regard to Persia. He mounts a force against Persia, destroys the Persian Empire, takes the ascendancy, and then in only 10 years' time, Alexander creates the largest empire the world had ever known. It would stretch from Europe to Africa, from Egypt to India, a massive empire in an extremely short period of time. But Alexander would not enjoy his power for long. That takes us, us, us to the prophecy of verse 4. Look what it says about Alexander. It says, And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, meaning his children would not inherit his throne, nor according to the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. So the prophecy was that a mighty ruler would arise, build an incredible kingdom, but just as quickly as it was set up, it would collapse. The king would die, the empire broken to bits. And friends, history records that this is exactly what happened with the Greek empire. Alexander would die at the age of 32 after an alcoholic binge. 
It was a sudden, unexpected death. And when he died, he had no succession plan in place. And so there was chaos as, as his subordinates tried to figure out what was going to happen to his vast empire. What eventually happened is that the Greek empire broke apart, broke into four pieces. And those four pieces were ruled by his four leading generals. So the Persian Empire, back in Daniel's day, it may have looked invincible, but it was going to fall. The Greek Empire would take its place. The Greek Empire would also look invincible, but its ruler would die, and the Greek Empire would fall. But again, Israel would endure. The Jews would remain in the land as this empire crumbled. And now we come to verses 5 through 20. These verses continue the historical progression. And here we find the focus of our attention on two of those four remnants of the Greek Empire. Two of the four. And they are named here as the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom. Northern Kingdom refers to the Seleucid Empire, that's Syria. Southern Kingdom refers to Egypt. That was ruled by Ptolemy. They're called North and South Kingdoms because they were immediately to the north and south of Israel. Everything in this text is with Israel as the focal point. And in verses 5 through 20, which we will not cover in detail because of just the sheer number of prophecies here, but in these verses, we have a, a detailed prophecy concerning all of the alliances and the rivalries and the tensions and the battles and the political intrigues which would take place over the generations between Syria and Egypt, the kingdom of the north and the kingdom of the south. And through all of that turmoil, Israel would be stuck there right in the middle of it all. North versus South, Syria versus Egypt, Seleucids versus Ptolemies, both sides wanting control of the Holy Land. Israel stuck right in the middle of it all. And yet, Israel would still endure. Look at verses 14 through 16. It says, In those times many shall rise against the king of the South, Egypt, and the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city, and the forces of the south shall not stand, or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills. None shall stand before him, and he shall stand in the glorious land. That's Israel with destruction in his hand. So for generations, you have these two remnants of the Greek empire, north and south, vying for control of the Middle East. Israel stuck right in the middle. Well, finally, according to verses 14 through 16, there would be a breakthrough. Syria would finally successfully conquer its foe, Egypt. It would run through the Middle East, through the Holy Land, conquering Egypt and taking possession of the Holy Land. Now, friends, all of this would be fulfilled at the Battle of Panium, which occurred in 200 B.C. 200 B.C. 
In this decisive battle, Egypt would be soundly defeated by the Syrian forces. And as part of the terms of Egypt's surrender, Egypt would give up all of its claims upon the Holy Land so that now the Holy Land would come under the rule of Syria. Specifically, it would come under the hands of, come into the hands of Antiochus III, also called Antiochus the Great, the ruler of Syria. And Antiochus the Great turned Israel into a vassal state. That means they had some level of independence, but they still had to offer tribute to Syria, and they still had Syrian rulers keeping an eye on things there. Israel didn't mind this arrangement at the time. In fact, when Antiochus the Great entered Jerusalem in 198 B.C., the Jews welcomed him as a savior. They saw him as a savior. Remember, they've been stuck in the middle of this battle between Syria and Egypt for a very long time. Finally, Syria prevails. They're thrilled about this. You know, the Jews had a history with Egypt, and it was not a good one. They had started out as slaves in Egypt. So when Antiochus the Great finally won a decisive victory against Egypt and then took Israel under his protection, they thought this was wonderful. They cheered Antiochus the Great as a hero. But friends, the Jews would soon discover that their salvation would not be coming from Syria and certainly not from any man named Antiochus. And this takes us to the prophecies in verses 21 through 35. These verses give us a prophecy about Antiochus the great son, Antiochus IV. His rule would happen roughly 300 years after Daniel's time. Now, Antiochus IV would call himself Antiochus Epiphanes. You might know that name. Antiochus Epiphanes. It literally means Antiochus, God manifest in the flesh. That's what he thought of himself. His reign would be so horrific for Israel that we sometimes call him the Antichrist of the Old Testament. Now, verses 22 through 35 offer a prophecy about this tyrant's career and how the Jews would respond to it. These are in the years leading right up to the arrival of Christ. Verses 22 through 24 explain the brilliant beginnings of Antiochus Epiphanes' reign. But then it says he would suffer an unexpected military setback in Egypt, which would force him to park in the Holy Land for good. Look at verses 29 and 30. It says, At the time appointed, and notice the wording there, at the time appointed, he shall return, this is Antiochus Epiphanes, he shall return and come into the south, he's going against Egypt, but it shall not be this time as it was before. Antiochus Epiphanes' father had successfully waged war against Egypt. Now his son thinks he can do the same, but his son does not have the brilliance of his dad. And besides that, a lot has changed in the world since his dad's time. So when he tries to conquer Egypt, things do not go his way. The prophecy goes on. It says... He shall turn back. And he's not going to be happy about that. 
He shall turn back and be enraged. And what will he do with his rage? He will take action against the holy covenant, talking about Israel. And he shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. So Antiochus Epiphanes tried to go against, he would try, looking from Daniel's perspective, he would try to go against Egypt like his father had done. A decisive blow to to capture Egypt as well as the Holy Land. But here's what history tells us happened. About 168 B.C., Antiochus IV was preparing his attack on Egypt when he received a visit from an ambassador of the new Roman Republic. Of course, the Roman Republic will soon become the Roman Empire. wasn't there yet. But he gets a visit from an ambassador of the Roman Republic. And the ambassador says to Antiochus Epiphanes, If you invade Egypt, we will consider it an act of war. And you will have to fight them and us. Antiochus realized he could not defeat two armies, and so he was forced to turn back, and he had to return to the Holy Land, stop his advance there. He realized he would never, never be able to conquer Egypt. That was humiliating for Antiochus, the man who calls himself God in the flesh, couldn't even defeat a couple of little armies. It was humiliating, and he was left enraged by it all. And so he determined that he would redouble his efforts in the Holy Land. If that's all he could have, then he was going to make the most of it. He was going to bring Syria's full control to bear upon Israel. They would have to adopt his culture, his religion, his language, total assimilation into Syria. That's what Antiochus Epiphanes, the Antichrist of the Old Testament, would do in Israel. We read of these horrors in verses 30 and 31. The prophecy says, uh, For ships of Katim shall come against him, he shall be afraid and withdraw. Okay, that's his withdrawal from the Egyptian campaign. Then he shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant, verse 31, and forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. And he shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. History tells us that this is exactly, exactly what Antiochus Epiphanes would do. Having lost his chance at Egypt, he now turns to the Holy Land where he waged a brutal campaign against the Jewish people. He sent his soldiers throughout the Holy Land, killing as many as 80,000 Jewish men, women, and children. Then he would rob the Jewish temple, taking away all of their furnishings. He would also end the daily sacrifices in the temple. And then he would rededicate the temple to Zeus, a false god. And then finally, in his ultimate act of sacrilege, Antiochus Epiphanes would sacrifice a pig on the altar of the temple. The worst crime imaginable in the Jewish faith. 
That is the event here prophesied as the abomination which makes desolate. To, to profane the holy temple of God in such a way. Well, verses 32 to 35 then prophesy how God's people in Israel would respond to all of these atrocities. Notice the twofold response. It says, and the, excuse me, yes, uh, end of verse 32. It says, but the people who know their God shall, one, stand firm, and two, take action. So the Persian Empire would fall, then the Greek Empire would rise and fall, and then these two little rump kingdoms, north and south, would battle for control of Israel. Finally, Syria would take control. Through it all, Israel would endure. But then this man Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes, would arise in Syria. He would wage a brutal campaign against Israel. He would end their sacrifices, slaughter their people, sacrifice a a pig on the altar. But still, still they would endure. Still there would be a righteous remnant in the land. And this righteous remnant would stand firm, it says. They would stand firm. That means they, despite it all, would not bow to Zeus or to Antiochus IV or to anybody else. They would stand firm. They would maintain their allegiance to the God of heaven. And then it says they would also take action. It means they would also organize themselves in defense of the Holy Land. And friends, this prophecy would be fulfilled in the famous Maccabean revolt. We see some of the details of that revolt in the next verses. It says, verse 33, And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. And when they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery. So some will be pure in heart, others will join for wrong motives, but they will all join. And some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined and purified and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. You see, Israel and its righteous remnant would endure They would stand firm. And then they would take action. They would resist the tyranny of Antiochus. They would rise up and they would teach the law of God to the Israelites. And they would evangelize their own people. They would call them all back to covenant faithfulness. They would preach repentance and trust in the God of heaven. And they would suffer fire and sword. And some of them would be banished from the land. But they would continue the battle for the hearts and minds of the Jewish people. And through it all... Israel would endure. They would survive these awful hardships. And so now taking a a step back, looking at the passage as a whole again, what we have in today's text is a long, detailed prophecy about Israel's future, stretching from Daniel's day all the way to the first coming of Christ. And here's what we see in this lengthy prophecy. In the centuries after Daniel, empires would rise and fall, and the Jewish people would be terribly persecuted. But, but the nation would endure. 
it would not lose its homeland again. And that righteous remnant would persevere in the faith right on through. And God was going to use all of the events prophesied here to set the stage for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, Israel's Messiah, Savior of the world, the one who would make that once and for all atoning sacrifice for sin. God was setting the stage for Christ to come. He was preparing his people to receive Christ when he came. Now, what lessons can we learn from today's text? Friends, I think there are a number of lessons specifically about God. First lesson that we learn in today's text is that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. That means God is sovereign over world affairs. God created the universe, the Bible teaches us, and God sustains it by the word of his power. And every moment of history is under the control and care of God. God has a plan for his world. It's a plan that is efficacious, meaning it's a plan that he knows how to accomplish. It's a plan that's comprehensive, meaning it covers all nations, all peoples. And it's a good plan because it will redound to his glory and to his people's everlasting good. God is sovereign over all things. My friends, in light of this, what reason do we have to be anxious about anything that we may face? I understand that the world feels really chaotic right now. You watch the evening news or scroll through your news feed, and all that you see are stories about about kingdoms around the world that are on the ascent. You hear stories of America on the decline. You hear stories of violence and of runaway inflation and of any number of atrocities. You hear of political and social turmoil. Sometimes we look at all of these things and we can grow very anxious. But do you understand that it has always been this way? This is nothing new. In Daniel's time, his nation was overrun by the Babylonians and he was sent off into captivity. He had to live among the Babylonians for decades. And then that empire fell. Then he found himself under the control of the Persians. And not long after Daniel's lifetime, Persia would fall, and then the Greek Empire would rise, and then it would break into pieces, and then the Jews in the Holy Land would be threatened as kingdoms north and south were vying for control of the Holy Land. There would be men like Antiochus IV coming to the scene, waging terrible persecution. That was, that was in the ancient time. This is modern time. Things have not changed all that much. The names and the faces change. But the trials continue. Friends, this is what life is like in a sin-cursed world. In a world where people are far from God and human hearts are broken. But friends, we have no need to be anxious about any of it. We can be sad, yes. We can have righteous anger about the things we see in the world, yes. But we do not fear what we see as if there is no God who's in charge. No, today's passage shows us that through all of the ups and downs of history, through every bit of it, God is there. He's on his throne. He is in charge, and he is working his own plan according to the counsel of his will. And friends, we can rest in God's good plans. 
Second lesson we learn from this text is that God is all-wise. He's all-wise. That means God knows how to bring His good plans to pass. He doesn't just make things up as He goes or, or have to make course corrections as He goes. No, God knows the end that He desires. In this case, the end was the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. His Son coming into the world to live, die, and rise again as an all-sufficient atonement for us. He knew what it would take to accomplish that end. He knew what the world needed to look like. He knew how to prepare the hearts of the Jewish people. He knew how to set up the institutions, how to get the world stage looking exactly as it needed to, for Christ to come at just the right time in just the right city to just the right family to be able to conduct his ministry just as had been ordained from before the foundations of the world. So God had his end in view. He knew how to accomplish the end, and history is the outworking of God's plan. God is not responsible for the sinful actions of man, but he certainly uses our sinful actions to forward his own good purposes. And friends, knowing that God is all-wise, do we not have reason to trust in him? You can trust in God. He has a plan It's a good plan, it's a wise plan, and he knows how to bring it to pass. Third lesson we learn from our text, God is gracious. God is gracious. I say this because God did not have to offer Daniel all of these detailed prophecies. As Daniel was pouring his heart out to God, fearful about the future of the Jewish people, God could have said, listen, I am God, I am in charge, just trust me. He could have left it there. But no, God is gracious and God is kind. And so God said, okay, Daniel, I want you to trust me. I am God, but now let me give you some details. This is what's going to happen for the rest of your lifetime and then in the three, four hundred years after your lifetime. This event will transpire and then this one and then this one and then this one. And yes, Your people, your nation, they're going to suffer hardships, but they're going to endure and they're going to persevere. A righteous remnant will stay and then the end will come. He did this all for Daniel's sake and now for our sake as we can look back, see the prophecies and then their fulfillment and say, yes, God did all of that. He did all of it just as he said he would. We see that God is gracious in this text Friends, this gives us reason to flee to him in our times of need. So what is your need today? Are you afraid? Are you afraid of the future? Are you afraid of what you see in the world around you today? Or are you under a weight of guilt? Are you trapped by a besetting sin and and you worry about standing before the judgment seat of Christ? Are you grieving a tremendous loss? What are your heart's burdens? Well, go to God. You can because he's gracious and he's kind. And just as he listened to Daniel's prayers and came with an answer, so too God will hear your prayers. God will answer your prayers, not by sending an angel to deliver you a message like he did for Daniel. We're not in that moment of history any longer, but he will answer your prayers through his providence, through the words he has written, through his leadings in your life. He will answer your needs. So go to him. 
And friends, the Bible says that God loves this world so much. He gave His only Son. That's why He sent Christ into the world. That whoever should believe in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And once we have done that, come to God through Christ and repent in faith, we have the assurance we are His children. And He loves us as a father would love a child. And He wishes to do us good. Go to your gracious God. And then a fourth lesson we see here is that God is faithful to his people. Just look at his faithfulness to Israel. You know, God had made a covenant with Abraham millennia before Abraham, the father of the Jewish people. And within that covenant, God had made some amazing promises about how he would use Abraham's descendants. Well, God intended to keep those promises. We see him keeping his promises throughout the history of the Old Testament scriptures. And we see God's prophecies where he guarantees he would continue to be faithful to them. God would indeed bless all nations through them as he brought the Messiah through them. God was faithful to the Israelites. He is faithful to us too. You know, the Bible also contains a lot of prophecies not yet fulfilled. There are prophecies concerning us and our future. Well, we can be sure that God is going to fulfill those just as He has spelled them out because that's what He did for His people in the Old Testament. And friends, this gives us reason to hope. We can hope that our future will be bright, that there is eternal joy and victory waiting for us because God says that is our end. Then a final lesson here we that God is able to glorify Himself among all people and in every circumstance. Look how He has worked here in Daniel chapter 11. Look at the whole book. Yes, He has glorified Himself through godly men like Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and others. But He has also glorified Himself through the world's tyrants, through Nebuchadnezzar, through Darius. He would glorify Himself through Antiochus. Through the godly, he showcases the glory of his mercy and grace and kindness and love. Through the tyrants and their terrible ends, through the judgment that they will one day face, God glorifies himself by showing his holiness, his justice, his hatred of sin. But either way, God will glorify himself in all people. And friends, seeing this, we have reason to worship We have reason to worship in good times and in bad. We see that God can glorify himself among all people in all circumstances. And by the way, should this not cause us to flee to him in repentance and faith, to have a saving relationship with him, would you not rather be glorified? Would you rather God not be glorified in your salvation than for him to be glorified in your judgment because of your persistent rebellion? So go to Him in faith and trust and in worship. Let's go to Him in prayer together now. Lord, we thank You for this passage, for all that it shows us about Your nature, what kind of a God You are. And Lord, just as You were sovereign over the affairs of former times, we know that You are sovereign over affairs today. Just as you were good to your people in ancient times, we know that you are still good to your people today, and you will be right through to the end of the world. Lord, we know that your plans are wise and good, that they will bring you glory, 
that they will bring everlasting joy to your people. We pray, Lord, that the number of your people would be great. We pray that you would use our church to reach many more with the gospel of Christ. We pray that our community would become filled to overflowing with worshipers of you who see you for who you are and delight in you, who wish to be named your children. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.